<clears throat> Good afternoon, and welcome to today's Alpheus T. Mason Lecture in Constitutional Law and Political Thought, uh, presented by the James Madison Program in American Ideals uh, and Institutions. I'm Keith Wellington, the Acting Director of the James Madison Program uh, for the year. Uh, and as many of you uh, may know, uh, Alpheus Mason was for many years an esteemed member of the Department of Politics at Princeton and a leading figure in the study of American constitutional law and political thought uh, and of the Supreme Court. Uh, this lecture series is made possible by the generosity of John P. Hansel of the Class of 48, a former student of Professor Mason's. Uh, to present today's lecture in the series, I'm happy to welcome uh, Donald Downs, Professor of Political Science, Law, and Journalism at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and a research fellow at the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. Uh, he's the author of five books, including the award-winning The Nazis in Skokie and The New Politics of Pornography. Um, and today he will be speaking on speech code, censorship, and undue process, politics and the restoration of free speech and liberty on campus, uh, which is also the subject of his soon-to-be-released book, which will be published by Cambridge, Cambridge University Press. Um, so keep checking Amazon uh, for that one. Uh, please help me in welcoming Professor Downs. <clears throat> Uh, thank you very much, Keith. It's a, a pleasure to be here in Princeton and to talk about First Amendment-related issues, more or less the, the political side of that. Uh, I gave a talk down in Washington, D.C. Uh, to the alumni about a month ago about a similar issue, a much more compacted talk, and no one cares about the First Amendment in Washington. All they want to hear about is the Fifth, you know. <laughs> so I'm happy to be in an institution that I'm sure values uh, the First Amendment. Uh, also, I have a special personal commitment to free speech because I was born in a backwater country without any kind of civil liberty tradition whatsoever. And I haven't been back to Canada in quite a while, <laughs> but someday I probably will. Now, my emphasis today is on an important and controversial issue, the status of free speech and academic freedom in institutions of higher education. My talk is based on my own research as well as my own experience as the leader of what I consider a rather unique free speech and liberty movement at the University of Wisconsin that's been in existence now for, God, 1996 was when we were launched. Our movement consists of an alliance of students and faculty centered on the Committee for Academic Freedom and Rights, CAFER, we call it. And I apologize for the, it's kind of a lousy acronym, but we lack the imagination to do anything better. CAFER was founded in 1996 uh, as a nonpartisan private group with a retained legal counsel that has supported many faculty and students at Wisconsin in cases that have risen over the years. CAFER's also acted politically to help foster a more pro-discourse, open discourse environment at the university in ways that I'll be talking about. Our first breakthrough achievement was in 1999 when we led the movement that led to the abolition of the faculty speech code at the Faculty Senate by 71 to 62 vote, uh, an act which is pretty much unprecedented in higher education today. Another school that's witnessed a similar turnaround is University of Pennsylvania, where Alan Charles Kors led a small group that achieved surprising reforms in the wake of a notorious case that I'll be talking about a little bit later. Penn's code was very narrow, requiring a specific intent to abuse based on race, gender, uh, and related categories was crafted by uh, Edwin Baker, a noted First Amendment scholar. And this case supported an experiential truth. It's not always how a code is written, it's how it's applied that matters. Many other codes around the country have been much broader 
Edinburgh University in Pennsylvania has a new civility code that makes it a crime of harassment to, among other things, criticize someone's political affiliation. Half the students at Wisconsin would have been in violation of that code the first day of the electoral season, <laughs> and I'm glad to say that's the case. Uh, University of Massachusetts had a similar kind of code, a political affiliation. I'll give you a minute to let that sink in before I go on. Well, 10 seconds anyway. <laughs> then there was a code at the University of Connecticut that, among other things, punished inappropriate laughter. <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> So one wonders, you know, what aspects of the bureaucratic imagination were behind the promulgation of, of that particular code. Now, many authors have treated this matter over the years in sort of the uh, response to so-called political correctness. Most works have focused on the legal uh, and policy aspects of such codes and related policies, and so do I. I mean, my book takes, looks at this issue from a variety of perspectives. But what I think makes my book distinctive is that I look at the politics involved and the way in which principles of academic freedom can be protected by the right kind of political mobilization. So it's rather a rather banal thesis, but it's one that really hasn't been talked about very much in the literature. And I and my group are living proof that such mobilization can actually uh, make a difference. The main principles of academic freedom I'll be talking about pertain to freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, due process, and uh, equal treatment in adjudication and discipline. Though often intended to create a more hospital climate for women and other minorities on campus, a goal which any reasonable person shares, such policies have too often had illiberal effects, leading to unprincipled, politicized enforcement that's compromised the intellectual diversity, freedom, and vitality of university life. Perhaps the strongest condemnation of the situation is that offered by Alan Charles Coors and Harvey Silverglate, Princeton graduates back in the 1960s. In their book, The Shadow University, published in 1998, I quote, the best aspects of the 60s, idealistic agenda, have died on our campuses. Free speech, equality of rights, respect for private conscience, and individuation, and a sense of undergraduate liberties and adult responsibilities. What remain in the 60s are the worst aspects, intolerance of dissent from regnant political orthodoxy, the self-appointed power of self-designated, quote-unquote, progressives, to set everyone else's moral agenda. Consider also this email that the Foundation for Individual Rights received uh, in June 2001. I'll be talking about that organization in a second. It's from a judicial administrator at a top 10 university, quote unquote. Listen to the, I'm hearing some noise back there. Someone got a cell phone on or something? You want me to feel at home, like in one of my classes at Wisconsin, right? <laughs> Thank you, you've succeeded. Quote, I spoke with you last week for a while before I got cut off. I was on a payphone. I'm a senior administrator and director of judicial affairs at a top ten institution and have information that I would like to share with you. Believe me, FIRE, the acronym for Foundation of Individual Rights and in Education, you know, that really is a good acronym. <laughs> They're better than we were. Uh, FIRE has barely scratched the surface regarding university uh, and college judicial affairs. And while revealing the testimonials on your website, or reading the testimonials on your website, I notice that none are from professionals in the field. Obviously, I don't want to lose my job. But after many years in the field, I believe the public needs to know what really goes on from a perspective you rarely, if ever, hear from. Can you suggest a next step? 
and then he hung the phone up. Now, I assume his top 10 university was not Princeton. Uh, it was probably Yale, or perhaps my alma mater, Cornell. Now, though I discuss the legal and theoretical policy aspects of codes, as I've mentioned, my primary focus is on the ways in which political mobilization and resistance can protect or restore liberal principles of freedom. CAFER is one local example. At the national level, there's FIRE, which was founded in 2000 by Coors and Silverglade to carry out the purposes and the principles of the Shadow University. It's taken on many cases nationwide, and it's been quite successful in many instances. Now, before I get into the real substance of my talk, I want to talk a little bit about some background uh, matters to sort of clear the conceptual field. First, many of the cases I'll be talking about are what I call no-brainers. And that I, by that I mean they, are clear, they involve clear violations of academic freedom that justify a strong resistance uh, to what took, took place. Unfortunately, many of the cases that we've had to deal with over the years are of this nature. But some cases are actually gray and require a more sort of pragmatic, subtle approach. One example of a no-brainer case, late 2003, Cal, Cal Polytechnic Institute. A student was found guilty of, quote-unquote, disruption for putting him a poster across from the Multicultural Student Center advertising a speaker whose new book was called uh, It's Okay to Leave the Plantation. The book was about how the welfare state perpetuates a kind of plantation mentality in citizens. As I said, he was charged with disruption. During a lengthy hearing, the vice president for student affairs told the student, quote, you are a young white member of Cal Poly College Republicans. To students of color, this may be a collision of experience. Interesting term. I'm not sure exactly what that means. The chemistry has racial implications, and you are naive not to acknowledge that fact. The case dragged on for months until an avalanche of public exposure by fire, the ACLU, and other groups uh, made the university eventually back down. On the other side of the coin, consider the recent fracas at Columbia University, something you've probably heard about. The Middle Eastern Studies Department has been accused by many Jewish students and others of browbeating students and intimidating students. The case pits student academic freedom against professorial academic freedom. And such hardline professor academic freedom people as Nat Hentoff and FIRE have actually taken the side of the students in this particular case. I personally think that they're mistaken to have done so. Uh, and we can talk about that later. I'll give you my reasons. But I certainly don't look at this as a, a bad, you know, horrible decision on their part. It is indeed a kind of difficult or gray case. The presence of such gray cases, however, does not justify the treatment many individuals that received in cases that I discuss in my book and in talk this afternoon. We must not let our knowledge of the complexity of cases uh, blind us to the need for taking a strong stand when the no-brainer type cases arise. Now, in my experience, the failure to distinguish properly between the gray cases and the black and white cases is a major reason for the precarious state of academic freedom in America today. One reason for the failure is that too many individuals in positions of responsibility no longer give priority to the principles of academic freedom. A lot of people pay lip service to, these, to intellectual freedom, yet fail to show up when these freedoms come under attack. Other reasons are that some are simply unaware of the ways in which certain policies and actions pose grave threats to the principles of academic freedom. I consider this a failure of education. 
Some also have pragmatic philosophies that make it difficult for them to see the wolf in the forest, if I may mix some metaphors. Some lack the courage to stand up and be counted in defense of intellectual freedom. I consider this a kind of Milgram experiment uh, problem. This is a failure of commitment. Restoring free speech and liberty on campus, as Keith pointed out in my just released book, deals with each of these reasons in some depth. Finally, I assume that the best universities have a distinctive fiduciary duty in our democratic society to promote knowledge, respect for the pursuit of truth, exposure to a wide diversity of viewpoints and ideologies, and respect for basic constitutional rights. I acknowledge the incredible diversity of what Clark Kerr once called the multi-university in our society. Different universities have different purposes. Uh, Nebraska, for example, you know what the N stands for on their helmet? Knowledge. <laughs> I once said that to some Nebraska students and they uh, pretended to laugh. <laughs> they didn't quite get it. <laughs> In Wisconsin, of course, we're quite different. Badgers are smarter than Cornhuskers, I guess. At any rate, uh, universities have different functions, but a university worth its salt must be dedicated to what uh, Janislav Pelikan calls the intellectual virtues in his book, The Idea of the University. He stresses, he says, the fundamental intellectual vir virtues in the law of studies are free inquiry and intellectual honesty. It's a great term, intellectual honesty. And during the speech code debate at Wisconsin, my students really wanted us to be intellectually honest with them, even if it meant offending them, because they wanted that kind of vibrant teaching. Now, intellectual diversity is a litmus paper test of the state of intellectual freedom at any institution. Alan Bloom's penetrating observation in the closing of the American mind captures the importance of free thought in a way which uh, I could not express. Quote, freedom of mind requires not only or not even, especially the absence of legal constraints, but the presence of alternative thoughts. The most successful tyranny is not one that uses force to assure uniformity, but the one that removes the awareness of other possibilities, unquote. Now, it's interesting to note that Bloom wrote his book in 1987. In this case, the owl of Minerva flew not at, 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 dawn, at dusk, but rather at dawn. For 1987 was a year that the speech code movement was launched around the country. It was a pivotal year. And what I depict is the transition from the liberal to the post-liberal conception of the university. The post-liberal university uh, is a university that's dedicated to a particular set of causes extrinsic to free inquiry. The post-liberal university is a new version of what was once called the proprietary university, which is a university dedicated to certain exogenous ends, such as religion or capitalism. The new post-liberal university is dedicated to an ethic of sensitivity. Now, I have nothing wrong with sensitivity, and I try to be sensitive when I teach and when I deal with people on campus, but it's a question of priorities. I depict the liberal university as giving priority to the virtues of academic freedom, the post-liberal university kind of reprioritizing, to use an awkward term. The post-liberal university, however, does value intellectual freedom in many cases, but not necessarily more than other values, such as diversity, sensitivity, and campus climate. In Wisconsin, we have a campus climate czar, a whole bureaucracy established to oversee campus climate. And I could tell you stories <laughs> later. Uh, but never has anyone in this office ever talked about the climate for free speech and open discourse as being part of the climate, which we have found rather astonishing. 
Getting priorities right is crucial when one has to decide what to do in the face of pressure. Restoring free speech and liberty on campus is, in some respects, an existential book. And that is concerned not only with law, policy, and principles, but also with how one acts when important principles come under attack in situations that are often emotionally and morally intense. And that's the only time it really matters. I portray what campus leaders, be they students, faculty, or administrators, do when campus groups exert concentrated pressure that threatens the right of speakers or writers who challenge campus orthodoxies. Now, if such pressure carries the day, no one is truly free. I like a comment that Alan Kors made last year in a conference in Los Angeles that I was at. He said, quote, liberty of opinion, speech, and expression is indispensable to a free and in the deepest sense, progressive society. Deny it to one and you deny it to all. Now, Wisconsin, over the last several years, until our movement really started gaining headway, conservative speakers had a very hard time sometimes speaking on campus. 1998, Ward Connolly from California was shouted down in a case that was a national disgrace. 1998, uh, Ralph Reed came to speak. I introduced him, not because of my background, but because no one else would, and I was the free speech guy. And they had to take out two rows of seats in the front to sort of keep a distance from the audience. They had armed guards up and down on the, uh, the aisles. They weren't needed at the end, but it took a lot of work to try to keep things peaceful. It ended up working out, but we had to work very hard for that to happen. Also, I'm going to refer to uh, a case from the opposite side of the perspective today, or the, or the spectrum, uh, Ward Churchill, uh, our friend from Colorado. And apparently, I'm going to be meeting in a couple of weeks when it comes to UW-Whitewater. I'm going to put on a panel there to try to figure out how to deal with it. And I think my first thing to do is to get a bulletproof vest <laughs> and talk about discourse. Uh, but if Churchill's fired for simply expressing what is admittedly an asinine statement, then how true is discourse at, at universities? And the Churchill case is rather different from the other kinds of cases I'll be talking about, which represent uh, progressive forms of censorship, censorship in the name of progressive causes. Churchill represents the return of an old kind of censorship from the right and from outside uh, the universities. I'm also amazed to see how many liberals that were unconcerned about free speech on campus are suddenly very concerned about it because their ox is being gored, and how many conservatives are suddenly less concerned about it than they were. Now, one reason it's often difficult to stand up and be counted for academic freedom in the face of pressure is that pro-academic freedom principles often lack presence in public discourse. This is a political problem, especially if such support uh, is actually lurking beneath the surface at the institution. When this is the case, many erstwhile defenders of academic freedom and due process on campus feel inhibited to stand up. If no one else is concerned, why should I be? There may not be a problem. I might be exaggerating the situation. If I do stand up, I'll be ostracized. These are human, all too human uh, responses. Now, many of the universities that I write about in restoring free speech and liberty on campus are examples of Bloom's point about the absence of alternative viewpoints. When free speech and discourse come under attack, the free speech open discourse side of the debate was not visible or backed by organized power. At Wisconsin, the very first thing we strove to do early in our decade-long decade struggle was simply to give public presence to the principles of academic freedom, which had disappeared from the public realm, interestingly. 
Wisconsin had a long, reputation, long history for being a pioneer in academic freedom. Back in the early part of the century, Wisconsin was instrumental in the establishment of the AAUP. And during the McCarthy era, Wisconsin was one of the few universities that opposed McCarthy's call for loyalty oaths by a resolution in the faculty senate. But this point of view had retreated in terms of public presence during the 1980s and into the early 1990s as other agendas took over. So we wanted to bring it back, and the first way you do that is to start talking about the principles in public, every chance you get. Sociologist economist Tamur Karan presents a theory of social and political change that is pertinent to the point I'm making. In his book, uh, Private Truths, Public Lies, The Social Consequences of Preference Falsification. Often democratic change is unimaginable for the simple reason that most sympathizers are hesitant to express their true beliefs. Koran explains that in an environment hostile to dissent, large numbers of people feel compelled to keep their beliefs to themselves and do not speak out because of fear of ostracism or punishment or because they doubt that their views will be taken seriously. But change can take place when background opposition is intense and an event or activist group sparks an explosion of change in people's thinking. The key is passing the critical threshold, as he says. In the presence of preference falsification, private opposition may spread and intensify indefinitely without any apparent change in support for the status quo. Yet at some point, the right event, even an intrinsically minor one, can make a few sufficiently disgruntled individuals reach their thresholds for speaking out against the status quo. Their switches can then impel others to add their own voices to the opposition. Public opposition can grow through a bandwagon process with each individual generating further additions until much of society stands publicly opposed to the status quo. The magnitude of change can seem almost miraculous, and Koran talks about the amazement that leaders of such movements have felt once they start seeing the success of their movement. And that's exactly how we felt at Wisconsin, uh, as I'll explain in a little bit. The theory fits very well with what happened at Penn and Wisconsin, though our processes of change were not explosive, they were a little bit slower. The Wisconsin story included an activist core that was able to generate a bandwagon effect under propitious circumstances. The eventual breakthrough led to the establishment of renewed uh, principles in, in the public realm that helped to win the speech code battle and which remains in place today. Same thing happened at Penn. Jonathan Rausch in the National Journal wrote an article about the abolition vote at Wisconsin in 1999. And he described uh, the reaction of one of our professors who had been persecuted by the code in language that comes right out of Koran's book. Richard Long, the first known example of a questionable investigation at the University of Wisconsin, uh, uh, he was the first known example of, of such an uh, application of the code. And uh, he told Rausch that the speech code of the climate it represented looked as sturdy as the Berlin Wall, which it turns out is exactly how sturdy they were, said Rausch. In 1999, Long is rubbing his eyes. And I met him last week. He's still rubbing his eyes. Uh, he's retired, so he has nothing else to do. I thought this would last a 1,000 years, said Long. I never thought it would change in my lifetime. And yet it did. Two no-brainer incidents during this, dealing with the same issue illustrates the importance of public support and discourse that I'm making. In February 2001, as many of you might recall, conservative journalist provocateur and many other things, David Horowitz sent an advertisement to dozens of student newspapers around the country in which he argued against the government paying reparations for slavery. Though hard-hitting, 
the ad was not racist according to any standard definition of the term, and it was debated civilly, though heatedly, in many different forums. An extraordinary article in Salon.com entitled, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Horowitz? Salon editor uh, Joan Walsh wrote about the debate over the ad that had taken place just a few months before in that journal. Quote, the debate was lively, argument on all sides got thoroughly aired, and a good time was had by all. Nobody picketed our offices. Nobody came to Salon with a list of grievances to be addressed. Nobody sought it was given an apology. Nobody called us racist, unquote. But when Horowitz sent his ad to universities, all whatever broke loose. It was like a giant defense mechanism uh, arose against unwanted ideas on campus. At Brown, 35 faculty petitioned the interim president to conduct a harassment investigation against the Brown Daily Herald for publishing the ad, as if the publication itself were a form of harassment. And at Berkeley, the Daily Californian was immediately apologized after being besieged by angry students demanding an apology. And it's part of my book, I talk about this case at Berkeley. Uh, the students at you know, one of the most famous, most famous college newspapers in America didn't have the kind of education, understanding of the principles at stake to resist the pressure when it came. It was simply, it was not just a question of, of a courage or failure. It was a failure of understanding and education, which therefore made it impossible to resist, even if you had the courage. Uh, unfortunately, this kind of reaction in the public forum is no stranger to the Berkeley campus. As many other controversial speakers have had their addresses either obstructed or compromised by hostile audiences over the last 25 years. Berkeley is not the home of the free speech movement any longer. The instances are really quite stunning, involving bullying, threats of violence, some actual violence, burglaries of publishing offices, uh, breaking in at night to steal uh, the printing presses and things like that, uh, destructions of entire runs of student newspapers. At times, the public forums resembled more a Hobbesian state of nature than a civilized place to be exposed to a diversity of views. Throughout all these instances at Berkeley, one fact stands out. There's no organized faculty or student movement to back up the principles of academic freedom on campus. Academic freedom at Berkeley is very sound in the classroom. I interviewed dozens of people. No one said it wasn't secure in the classroom. Where it's not secure is in the public forum, which is a very important aspect of university life. Now, the Badger Herald at Wisconsin took the opposite path. Uh, it stood strong in the face of equally intense pressure to apologize, two days after the Daily Cal had apologized. Uh, it's a massive student movement, 200 students trying to get into the, he the Herald headquarters. They had to have eight armed guards to keep them out and lock their doors. But the Herald refused to apologize and wrote an editorial that won several national and state awards. The Herald said, we regret, we only regret that the editors of the Daily Californian allow themselves to give into pressure in a manner that unfortunately violated their professional integrity and journalistic duty to protect speech with which they might disagree. Now, the leaders of the Herald consulted with me and my group, CAFER, before writing the editorial. And we promised our full support. I remember sitting in my office at 9 o'clock at night with just one little lamp. I don't like overhead lights. And uh, it's okay. You can leave that one on there, Keith. And, uh, you know, we're helping to write the editorial, knowing the next day what was going to happen once that editorial came out. It was a very intense and exciting time. The Herald leaders felt a fiduciary duty to defend free discourse right on campus in the face of incredible pressure that they knew would be unleashed the next day. 
And the Herald was willing to take the stand on its own, but it also had us behind it. And as Rausch wrote in the National Journal the following week, the Badger Herald's community is not the same as the Daily Cal's community. In Wisconsin, an energetic free speech faction has emerged in the past few years. In 1999, the faculty uh, rose up to abolish the speech code. And then when the, Barrel, when the Badger Herald came under fire this month, an aggressive free speech group called the Committee for Academic Freedom and Rights immediately offered the paper its full support. So, important difference between the two. And I think with the, the Herald's stance, as I mentioned at lunch, uh, really did help change the, the campus climate. You know, standing up to that kind of pressure, students started realizing we can't get the Herald to back down. We have to try to criticize what they say rather than getting them to apologize or to not publish what they want to publish. Now let me briefly discuss some of the other case studies in my book. Uh, I talk about cases nationwide. It's about the, higher, the state of higher education in general. But I have four case studies that I focus on. Sexual misconduct policy that was passed at Columbia University in 2000. Uh, the University of California public forum problem, which I've already talked about. Uh, the Wisconsin movement. And also uh, the, the anti-speech code movement at the University of Pennsylvania. So let me start with Columbia. In 2000, Columbia's University Senate enacted questionable new procedures for the adjudication of sexual misconduct cases. The reform was needed. The new policy discarded virtually all aspects of due process. Eventually, the university modified its views only because outside pressure was brought to bear by groups like FIRE, it was actually the case that put FIRE on the map nationally, and by the Wall Street Journal. I found in my research that the movement toward the policy was remarkably one-sided. Virtually no dissenting voices were heard on any university committee established to deal with the policy, nor did any such voice speak out in the broader public forum until the very end of the process. A coalition of students led by an organization called SAFER, Students Active for Ending Rape. Let me mention, by the way, reform was needed. I don't criticize the need for reform at Columbia. Basically, the old policy wasn't working. This is always a tough issue. But this particular change went completely, and it was like a one-way jury in the other direction. Uh, this group, Safer, marshaled a massive campaign in support of the policy that included marches, rallies, and the wearing of red tape by up to 25% of the student body, symbolizing the bureaucratic red tape that had bedeviled the previous program. After the vote came down, the leader of Safer bragged about the fact that administrators had terror and fear in their eyes during the vote. Columbia's story epitomizes the points I'm making about commitment. Though Safer and his close allies construed the due process as a form of oppression, the students who worked on the actual drafting committee that went to the Senate were reasonable people who would have included some due process protections if only they would have had the education to do so, and if there had been that kind of voice present in the politics. They just weren't aware of the importance of these principles. Uh, one student, Sophia Berger, uh, who was probably the leading undergraduate uh, student activist on campus, said the following. She was on that committee. One thing that made me so mad all this time was that I was getting all this in information, all these phone calls and emails that I got in the open forum. No civil liberty group ever said anything. There was barely anyone who ever said anything against it, anything along the lines of what FIRE ended up fighting for. I wish there had been someone fighting against SAFER that would have made it so much more raucous on campus, but then it wouldn't have been one overwhelming voice. I mean, liberty sometimes requires conflict, tension, and being raucous. It's a basic constitutional principle. SAFER was not representing every student, and there was no way it could. 
The woman who became the editor-in-chief of the Columbia Daily Spectator right after that made a similar comment. She said that anyone who opposed Safer was demonized. By getting all those groups involved, Safer made it virtually impossible to criticize anyone behind the policy. If you criticize a policy, you're anti-Safer, you oppose violence, uh, and you're against those who oppose violence against women. The administration caved into the activists. They appear to have made no attempt to find out what non-SAFER students felt. They took SAFER as the student opinion. Next case is the University of Pennsylvania. Some of you have probably heard about this case. It's a rather famous case. What I say about it in terms of its policies is not really that new, but my take is the political take. I look at the kind of organization that CORE dealt uh, engaged in to fight the student code at Penn. As you've probably heard, a student in 1993 was accused, a guy named Eden Jacobowitz, of violating Penn's speech code. Jacobowitz's transgression lay in calling some African-American sorority sisters water buffaloes for partying loudly outside his dormitory at 2 in the morning. It was widely understood that water buffalo was a term with no racial meaning, but nonetheless, he was charged in a very politicized kind of prosecution of violating Penn's allegedly very narrow uh, speech code. As I mentioned, the prosecution was very politicized. At one time, there was a 12-page or 14-page police report that completely exonerated Jacobowitz, but someone destroyed it, and it was never found. It's just one example of the problem. The prosecution epitomizes a key point in my book. That is the problem of treating conflicts like this one by resorting to punitive measures, in a sense, criminalizing being offended. I'll say more about this uh, at the end of my talk. Well, Coors became Jacobowitz's advisor, and after much struggle, managed to turn the case into a national showcase against speech codes. It's sort of the, the case that made Coors famous, and he hasn't looked back since. Coors then leveraged the impact of the case to effectuate stunning institutional change at Penn. The speech code was abolished. Uh, Orientation programs were changed to be more liberal in terms of their concepts. And a variety of other administrative changes were made to make the place more friendly to, to discourse. The Water Buffalo case gave speech codes a bad name at Penn, allowing pro-free speech supporters to gain influence in the, in the public sphere and political opinion. Coors described the effect to me in an, in an interview. Penn took such a hit that students were mobilized across a pretty broad spectrum, he said. People who had lost their courage and voice suddenly found it. And administrators had more to lose supporting the code than backing away from it. The student government opposed the administration in the case, developed a campus-wide uh, First Amendment task force that proved useful in future cases that came up. And as I said, the speech code was abolished. Uh, there were faculty debates about what to do about the code, people speaking their views on both sides of the matter. There was real kind of John Stuart Mill uh, give and take. Finally, the University of Wisconsin, my case, the last of my case studies. In 1987, Wisconsin led the nation, was a pioneer under the uh, chancellorship of Donna Shalala, in passing speech codes, a student code and a faculty code. All anyone ever talked about was a student code because it was called a speech code. The faculty code was called something else, and we tended to forget that it existed. A federal court declared the student code unconstitutional in 1991, but the faculty code uh, remained on the books. When the codes were passed in 1988, I was a senator. I voted for them. I was a pro-speech pro code person back in those days. And one reason was because I trusted university administrators to be able to draw a principled balance between uh, civility and free speech. 
that changed. By the early 1990s, the faculty code started being enforced. And also, the pro-code forces were the only forces that were organized and vocal. This was very similar to uh, the situation uh, that existed at Columbia that I talked about earlier. By the early 1990s, however, the faculty code started being enforced in very troubling ways. The first known case took place in 1990, when art professor Richard Long was investigated for saying, see Heil comrades. Notice he was very careful about being politically balanced. He had comrades and see Heil. And uh, he said it to two graduate students who had been harassing him in the hallways for several weeks because of his conservative views. And this was also in the aftermath of an unbelievably intense department dispute over standards, over artistic standards, in which Long had not been a participant, self-consciously so. Well, unbeknownst to Long, one student's wife was Jewish, and one other had gypsy ancestors. So rather than saying, I don't appreciate your comrade, I'm your comment, excuse me, your comment, comrade, uh, they resorted to applying the faculty speech code, and they went up to the administration building, and they filed a formal complaint. And this unleashed a months-long investigation of Long and some other people in the department. During several weeks of damaging innuendo leading up to the official questioning, it was known all over Bascom Hill, Wisconsin's administrative hill, that Long was being, quote, investigated for racism, sexism, homophobia, and other things. It was basically a witch hunt. In the end, nothing was found. Richard was not that kind of man, but he had conservative views, conservative Catholic to boot. A hearing was finally held in March 1991, during which Long was questioned by two faculty members in a closed room. Didn't take long for the questioners to realize that there was nothing on him. But then they decided to keep asking questions. One asked him, uh, do you have a lot of problems in the areas of racism, sexism, and homophobia? <laughs> Richard refused to answer this and several other questions, but the interrogation continued. Now, Professor Long, have you ever used the word feminazi, one said to him. And at this point, Gordon Baldwin, who was one of the authors of the original speech codes, who is now our legal advisor on CAFER, a lot of switching going on here uh, based on experience, reached over, he was doing, he was supporting um, Richard pro bono. And he reached over and put his hand over Richard's mouth. So censorship in the name of being anti-censorship, I guess. And he said, uh, don't say another word. And then he turned to the two interrogators and said that uh, he was directing his client not to answer the question. He went on to inform them, I'm quoting from an essay that Long wrote about this, to inform them that the Constitution of the United States was in effect in the entire United States. including the University of Wisconsin and the room in which we were sitting. And as someone who came to Wisconsin partly because, largely because of its great reputation for not being this way, this was a rather uh, alarming thing. So the interrogators then adjourned the meeting. The case was dropped. Richard asked for a public vindication that was refused. And then he said, simply give me the record, the investigative record. It had mysteriously disappeared from the face of the earth. You know, maybe it'll come back someday, some archaeological expedition will find it. Uh, but so far, that has not happened. Well, this case was alarming to many of us, and it brought some of us together in a small, fledgling movement uh, at the time. But we remained voices in the wilderness. And in my book, I call this sort of the wilderness period uh, for us. We had a lot of ideas, a lot of concern, but we were politically inept. And I was totally un 
I, I didn't have any political skills whatsoever. And now I have some. It happens when you, when you finally do get into it and develop it. But you've got to get started somewhere, sort of like, you know, getting a job for the first time. And you can't really get a job the first time because you haven't had a job. It's very similar. Anyways, the 90s were on. Other questionable investigations took place at Wisconsin that had, the catalytic, had catalytic effects on our movement. One involved philosophy professor Lester Hunt, who's one of my colleagues and allies and is one of the leaders of CAFER. He, among other things, was charged with racism for making a pedagogical joke about the Lone Ranger and Tonto in a class. And you might have heard it. Uh, it's about, he's talking about community versus individualism. Lone Ranger and Tonto are being uh, ready to be burned at the stake. Lone Ranger turns to Tonto and says, we're in trouble. And Tonto turns to him and says, what do you mean we, Kimosabi? It wasn't meant to be a racist kind of comment whatsoever, and yet he was charged. Lester was vindicated by a proper investigation because his department did the investigation in this case. But nonetheless, the process was the punishment. And uh, he suddenly felt like every time he was in class, he was walking on eggshells. He would start looking at the different genders and races of the people in the audience and structure his teaching around that rather than just having intellectual uh, honesty. Former student of mine, Nat Hakim, uh, wrote an unpublished article which quoted uh, Lester's thinking about teaching. Teaching to become a game of strategic uh, thinking, an academic cat and mouse exercise. The vitality of the cauldron of ideas that is a university is extinguished when giving offense is forbidden. There was also a case of a 74-year-old man uh, who was taken out of his class while he was lecturing uh, and taken into a room and questioned with an armed guard and a closed door. And he had done, said some inappropriate things to a 38-year-old graduate student. I, don't, I acknowledge that. And one thing he had done was ask her to marry him. And she ended up having some troubles with that. And I can understand there's a power differential there, so that we can talk about later. But the university treated it like it was a crime. And he had questioned in a closed room with an armed guard. That was Kafer's first case that came to us. And we managed to get him, the university, to back off. They wrote a reprimand they put in his box, in his file. And uh, then he went on with his, his life. But in, uh, he was very grateful for us being there for him. Okay. Uh, there are other cases involving student newspapers I won't get into for time reasons. Uh, student newspapers being destroyed, burned. It always amazed me when you have students that are burning newspapers, not understanding what burning books means uh, historically. Well, in 1996, a catalytic, catalytic event took place. There was an illegitimate investigation of a professor in the history department. Uh, and when the professor found out about it, uh, it became quite an issue. Though the investigation began in the department, it was sanctioned in the higher levels of the administration. The faculty code was not technically involved in the case, but the uh, target always thought the code was lurking right there in the background. The case sent shivers through the divided and politicized history department and shocked many individuals who had been nonchalant about the illiberal consequences of such policies. When conscientious colleagues finally informed the target of what was going on, he sued the university and won a settlement. As a result of this case, 30 of us met in a room in the university uh, club over lunch. I remember the, when I walked in, there was like a cloud of concern hanging over the group. And we decided to form CAFER. CAFER represented the joining of free speech activists like myself who were unconnected to larger groups. It's what, with people in the history department who were getting organized 
and with the Wisconsin Association of Scholars, a branch of the National Association of Scholars, who are good at politically uh, organizing. So I learned how to get political uh, from being around these associates. We managed to obtain outside funding from the Bradley Foundation, which gives us 100% autonomy, and have retained a local Madison attorney for legal actions. He played in the famous 1963 Rose Bowl game, so he's very aggressive on our behalf. And uh, our first president was Stanley Payne, perhaps the world's leading uh, scholar of European fascism. And uh, Jane Hutchison was our treasurer from the art history department, and I was the secretary. I interpreted that as the political operative. Now I'm the president, and Stanley's the secretary. With the formation of CAFER, the Madison Free Speech and Academic Liberty Movement was born. Restoring Free Speech and Liberty on Campus chronicles the long and tortuous path that led to the abolition of the faculty code in the Faculty Senate in the spring of 1999. I can't go into the details here, I don't have time, but it was, it's a marvelous kind of experience, very time consuming, very exhilarating, and students have been a very crucial part of the movement. I recall Alan Kors saying that students are the future of universities and there's hope because students believe in the principles of academic freedom. We succeeded for several reasons, including the following. One, we got organized and committed and uh, created a critical mass of resistance, which gave cover to others. Second, we were able to use the questionable cases as publicly recognized reasons to go against the code. It always helps to have victims. You don't want to indulge in victimology, but there were tangible victims to the code. We live in that kind of society. Three, we drew on the latent support for traditional liberal principles that lay dormant during the era of codes. This is really important. It ends up a majority, at least of the faculty senate, which is very representative of the campus, uh, people believe in the liberal principles of academic freedom. But they just had no vehicle by which to speak out and to take action on those principles behalf. CAFER helped provide that. The first evidence of the uh, success we were going to have, the kind of amazement that Timur Karan talks about, occurred in the first faculty senate meeting. We had three faculty senate meetings over the code. And the first one, we went in there expecting to get clobbered. We had a group, uh, the university established a special ad hoc committee that spent a year working on proposals to amend or abolish the code. And finally, a year later, we go to the faculty senate. We were the abolitionists. We thought we were going to get clobbered. It ends up every faculty senate member that came up and spoke out was on our side. Not one exception. And I never forget, I said, what is this? And we had to pinch ourselves. This could not be happening. And I remember after the meeting, we all met outside the faculty senate room, and we were almost kind of like levitating in the air. It was just so, it was so exciting. It was like we had a lot of champagne or something, which we did have after the final vote. <laughs> and then I wrote in the Daily Cardinal that the Senate, quote, spoke with the language of free men and women. Well, the 60, 71 to 62 speech code vote received widespread national attention. And we actually we, we engineered that because we knew that outside people were against codes and they could put pressure on the administration. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Associated Press, National Public Radio, Village Voice, Reason, Liberty, Chronicle of Higher Education. We were on the cover of that at one point. Uh, this all helped. Second faculty meeting on the code, we heard this horror story before the meeting. One of my students, Jason Shepard, a homosexual student who was anti-code to the hilt. Uh, I say homosexual because the code was partly passed to try to protect students like that. And Jason said in front of the whole faculty senate, I don't need a code. I don't want a code. It's, it's condescending to me. He sent us an email and said there's a student group that is going to show up, and they have a horror case of an abusive professor. He's going to, this case is going to show why the code needs to stay strong. 
And I replied to him, well, you know, our opponents often shoot themselves in the foot. Let's hope this happens this time. Well, it did happen. Student was announced, uh, introduced by another student who was shaking with anger. She got up and she said, uh, last class, a student, a professor, in reading from Schauser, used the word niggardly in class. As you all know, it's a term of no racial meaning whatsoever. This was one week after the, a similar case in Washington, D.C., which was a national embarrassment. So I'm sitting up here with my, with my students and some other people, and I'm just you know, trying to hide my, my joy at this. The next day, the Wisconsin State Journal had an editorial that said, this is proof why codes are a bad idea. And the administration got bombarded by emails from all over the country saying, what's wrong with Wisconsin? Because the AP was there at the meeting, because we asked it to be there, and it covered the story nationwide. Well, the Wall Street Journal had the best comment on it. This was by Dorothy Rabinowitz, who was Coors and Silverglades ally. She wrote in the Wall Street Journal editorial, the story of the successful battle was one in which one faculty member after another found his voice. A story in which by an alchemy known only in a free society, accommodation and silence dropped away, and formerly quiet citizens spoke their minds. They used to make movies with scenes like this. Well, it does get a little cheesy. Speeches like some of those heard here, uh, way back when filmmakers were given to celebrating American values and character. It may be, of course, that the University of Wisconsin adherents of the speech code will look for ways to bring it back in another form. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, it's sort of like you know, Glenn Coase in that movie, you keep getting back in, out of the bathtub. Uh, that can't matter now that Wisconsin's faculty code has shown what can happen under the leadership of a few intrepid rebels against the forces of dimness. Well, I said it was a little cheesy. Uh, Rabinowitz's predictions were right. New crises did arise. But because we had fought the speech code battle politically, we had an infrastructure in place that was ready to act. Plus, we'd already carved out respect for these principles in the public sphere. So it wasn't like we were you know, speaking from Mars when these crises arose. A, a month after the code battle, the university administration tried to pass in the faculty senate due process reforms that watered down due process. Our mere threat of fighting it compelled the administration to drop that effort in its tracks. And then in the summer of 2000, we were the major player in a resistance movement that led to the dismantling of a university-wide, this has been done over the summer, it's a long story, but 35 anonymous complaint boxes were set up all over campus and right across from bathrooms in strategic locations so people would see them, I guess. And inside the bathrooms they had brochures that encouraged people to inform on others for you know, serious crimes, and informing is part of law enforcement, but there are certain constitutional rules that uh, pertain to whether or not you get probable cause based on informants. And uh, uh, it's one thing to provide for anonymous complaints. It's another thing to encourage them, all right? And I have great stories about this program. Uh, it reverberated with Orwellian aspects. And we were very alarmed. We went, a group of four of us went to the chancellor who was previously the provost who had opposed this program, but it was vetoed by then-Chancellor David Ward. And we basically told him we have a mass movement. It took us about two days to get a mass movement of faculty. One of my colleagues uh, had ancestors who were killed in the Salem witch hunts, and he had their diaries, and he was going to go to the floor of the faculty senate and read them, which, of course, I let our new chancellor know. And he was outraged by that fact, and I said, I'm just reporting what I was told. Within a month, all those boxes were dismantled. And to me, that was a singular victory, uh, which was, would have been unthinkable uh, some years before that. 
We've also been involved in fighting a new type of speech code that's arisen. It's called professional conduct codes within different schools. And of course, you know, medical schools, uh, doctors have to have certain codes of conduct, certain responsibilities. But these are Trojan horses for basically controlling all aspects of student lives. Uh, even writing hostile student evaluations was part of the code. And a student was being persecuted under this, came to us, and we managed to get the medical school through meetings with other university officials to change what it was doing. It was entirely our doing. In some ways, these codes were worse because by calling them professional conduct codes, they didn't have to abide by the normal due process standards that discipline codes have to abide by because the Supreme Court has made a distinction between uh, academic conduct versus discipline cases. And uh, finally, my group's been involved in a uh, move against the Board of Regents of the University of Wisconsin system. Professor of UW Superior was uh, fired with tenure uh, without any kind of due process really whatsoever. And in doing so, the University or the Board of Regents watered down the standard of just cause for dismissal of tenured faculty. And in this case, all the UW system faculties are on our side. So unlike the sort of culture war issues that were part of the speech code battle, where it was sort of us against a lot of other people, we are now the leaders of a consensual kind of movement. I guess we've been sort of institutionalized, for better or for worse. Lester Hunt, for, one, uh, for a while, became the head of the Equity and Diversity Resource Committee on campus. Jane Hutchison then took his place. We've become uh, major uh, actors on campus. So I guess I'd have to say that it's been a success. Well, in conclusion, let me stress a couple of points that come out of this. One, speech codes and related policies are often tools to criminalize disagreements or being offended. Now, we can talk about the Harvard cases. There are cases where uh, it could be fighting words kind of case. It could be a clear racist derogation going on in class. What do you do about it? Those can be great cases. But codes have to be very careful about how they deal with it. And I have a, my solution would be to limit uh, codes to uh, threats, basically, and try to use informal means to deal with, with uh, other problems that arise. Uh, second, politics matters. In the absence of administrative commitment to these principles, which is widespread, there's no substitute for faculty-student mobilization, uh, as I talk about uh, developing a kind of uh, bandwagon. In my view, political action is better than going to court. And here's where the public law scholars, and we'll get a little bit of public law scholarship here. Uh, researcher John Gould, who's a student of Jerry Rosenberg, who's written the famous book, The Hollow Hope, he argues that Supreme Court decisions aren't really effective until you get political mobilization by the government and political movements behind them to you know, make them actual. And Gould uh, wrote an essay, uh, you know, has a book out on it, which I haven't gotten to yet. It just came out. It shows that court rulings against speech codes in the 1990s had no effect on universities' actual practices. As a matter of fact, after 1992, the Supreme Court came down with the famous case, R.A.D. versus St. Paul. It's a great case. I have stories about it in terms of our movement as well. But um, that was supposed to be the end of most college speech codes because they were based on special categories of race and gender, et cetera, which the court said were viewpoint uh, categories. It entailed viewpoint discrimination. After R.A.D. came down, the number of speech codes grew according to Gould. And Gould didn't even count harassment codes, which are really the main area where speech codes are being enforced now. They're not called speech codes, they're called harassment codes. Changing the word can make a difference. Uh, and uh, so you know, there wasn't that kind of change. When Wisconsin's code was declared unconstitutional, 
It had no normative impact on anybody. The whole idea was, what can we do strategically to get around it? Uh, in his book, The Concept of Law, H.L.A. Hart makes a distinction between being obligated and being obliged. You're obliged to do something because you have no choice. He uses the metaphor of a gunman. The gunman puts a gun to your head, says, give me your money. You're obliged to give the money. But you're not obligated to give the money. There's no moral commitment to it. Okay? Well, that's the way it is sometimes with, with, with court rulings, at least in this particular area. And uh, the Wisconsin Civil Liberties Union, which fought, you know, the Wisconsin branch of the ACLU, which fought against the student code, uh, uh, we went to it and asked it to take the faculty code to court. They refused to do so. I was really mad about that. And I even got Nadine Strassen, the head of the ACLU, to contact them and say, do it. But they wouldn't do it. But in the end, I'm really grateful. Because it meant that we had to do it the old-fashioned way, by political persuasion. One, it was a lot of fun. Two, I got a book out of it. Three, that's more effective. We had to change people's minds rather than using some sort of external coercive institution. Not to, I'm not denigrating courts and the rule of law, but that's how this was perceived in this kind of context. We had to convince the community to change its mind about codes. And that meant a normative change. And it meant politics. It meant changing the public sphere and it meant convincing people and creating an infrastructure that could stay in place to go after anonymous complaint boxes and things like that. So I'm very grateful. Now, there's a counter view in public law, Michael McCann, an old, roommate, old buddy of mine in grad school, uh, who argues that uh, court decisions can also be very important to generate and energize political movements. So, you know, it's not like Rosenberg's 100% right. Uh, court makes a pro-free speech ruling that uh, does have some sort of public commitment behind it. Political movements can pick up on that and use those rulings to make their case politically. We did that as well. So it's sort of a combination of drawing on the legacy of court decisions plus the politics of persuasion concerning academic freedom. But I tell you, it was the latter that was much more important, at least to uh, our particular movement. Well, final point. Universities need to be, have more self-doubt when it comes to virtuous policies. I believe in diversity. I mean, not, to not believe in diversity as it's normally construed is almost un-American. We are a country of diverse people. And uh, I think that is a, it's a great thing. It's part of our strength. It's one reason we're not going to decline like other democracies in the world. And, but when diversity is pursued without questioning, without what Dana Bill in his book Socratic Citizenship calls the right kind of self-doubt, then it becomes a recipe for injustice. Any moral agenda is a recipe for injustice when it no longer questions itself. And, you know, Freud thought that, Reinhold Niebuhr thought that, a lot of other great thinkers think that, and even lesser thinkers, I think that. <laughs> um, this, uh, having self-doubt is an aspect also of the need for checks and balances on the campus. The administrations tend to be very singular in their thinking. You need checks and balances, you need dissent in order to have Socratic questioning. Uh, there are other issues we could talk about uh, in Q&A. Uh, we'll get back to the Columbia case, you know, or Churchill. What do you do? What if I'm teaching a class and uh, say, you're Jewish, and I say, I don't, I don't like Jews in this class, or I make some clear anti-Semitic comment to a student? Clearly, we've got a problem there. It can't not be ignored. Is there a way that we can do a code to deal with that, or is there some other way to try to deal with it? Uh, Sometimes, you know, when I talk about these cases, the no-brainers end up being everything I talk about. In Wisconsin, all our cases were. I'm sorry, they just were. 
Uh, but there are great cases, and that's when you really have to make a tough decision. I'm very aware of that. So that's all. Thank you, Professor Downs. Uh, we do have uh, some time for questions. Uh, in keeping with mass and program traditions, I'd like the first question, at least, to uh, be from a student, if there are students uh, who have questions. Otherwise, we'll uh, throw it open. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about it at Wisconsin or nationwide? Or? Nationwide. Right. That's a very important question. And uh, uh, first of all, I would say there might be a common denominator here that part of free speech is protesting someone coming. Uh, so everybody's engaging in free speech. No one's talking about censoring uh, the Christian coalition or whatever it was that you're talking about. Uh, but absolutely, I've seen that. I've seen it in the, in the uh, Ward Churchill kind of situation. Uh, I wrote an article, uh, it was in this conference we did last year in Maryland, about whose ox is gored. And the idea was that after 9-11, with the return of traditional censorship from the right, uh, this might be an occasion for us to think about free speech principles in a universal way. Because the right has been gored over the last 15 years on campus. Now we're starting to see the return of the left being gored. And both sides should be, have a kind of meeting of the minds and realize that these are really universal principles, not simply partisan political principles. David Horowitz, I think, is an example of what you're talking about. Uh, Horowitz talks a lot about free speech. But he's doing a lot of things right now, I think, to challenge academic freedom. He's in favor of the Student Bill of Rights. Do you know much about that? Uh, he wanted Wisconsin to be one of the pioneers for it. He contacted a Board of Regent member who then called me and said, do you want to push us at Wisconsin? I said, no way, uh, because that would be an outside intervention, you know, outside groups looking at our syllabi and things like that. Are you kidding? That's, that's McCarthyism. Uh, so I think Horowitz might be an example of what you're talking about. Uh, I know one of my students who's been a great leader in this and worked at the Badger Herald as well has a suspicion that FIRE might be doing that a little bit in the Columbia case as well. Uh, I think that's probably unfair because FIRE really works hard and they have protected a lot of left-wing speakers in the last few years in the post-9-11 era. But uh, uh, he suspects that maybe this is a political thing on FIRE's part because there's this sort of left-wing uh, Middle Eastern studies ideology that they're fighting. I'm not going to say I agree with that. But sure, that, and that's, if that, I think, A, it's happened, and B, I think it's a sad commentary. It's sort of like, you know, the old independent, independent council law. Conservatives hated it when Reagan was president, and then Clinton becomes president. A lot of conservatives liked it. And the Democrats, of course, flip-flopped as well. And even some distinguished law professors uh, made that flip-flop without any kind of awareness that they were flip-flopping. Same thing can happen in free speech. Now, there's a book by Richard Primus about uh, constitutional rights being part of historical movements to um, be equal. So groups adopt free speech as a norm, as a vehicle for trying to present their views in the public sphere to gain equality. 
free speech movement was more about a political vision than about free speech. You know, I talk about that in the book a little bit. Um, so there's a natural tendency for free speech to simply be, this is the constitutional tool or shield that I need to push my politics. That's human, all too human. Universities, however, have to be different from that because it goes back to our fiduciary, our fiduciary responsibility to be places where diversity of thought and free inquiry are the primary reason we're here. Let me quote you very quickly something I left out at the end of my talk by a professor at Berkeley. This is in the aftermath of the free speech movement. The main task we face in preserving the university not merely as a free political community, but primarily as an institution which is privileged to be an intellectual sanctuary within a greater society that is now in political flux. After all, the university's prime mission resides not in political activity, but in the cultivation of the intellectual freedoms. It is imperative that no one facet of the university's activities, certainly not the political, should dominate its overall responsibilities for the cultivation of the intellect. Any conflict between the intellectual and political way of life must be resolved in favor of the primacy of the intellectual over the political. So when we do it, it's wrong. When others do it, it's understandable. Long answer, sorry. What's your response? Right. Um, and obviously Right, right. But Thor, I think if Thor were confronted with a, a left winger being censored, Thor would do the right thing. Yeah. I think Thor has um, um, and he embodies those principles. Uh, but your point's well taken. <coughs> Great question. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay. I've talked enough. <laughs> right, right. Those are private schools, though. They have a right to do it. Right. It doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Well, you know, this is, it, again, things do get more complex sometimes. Uh, it is part of the intellectual diversity of America that you do have colleges that are, that are devoted to a proprietary kind of view, a more a narrower kind of vision. I want to have some narrow-minded schools on the left and the right. Most of them tend to be more on the right when they're narrow-minded in this country, but I'm not trying to make a political point here. That's part of our diversity as well. But if you want to be a major university that has any kind of claim to intellectual greatness, then it's liberal principles that need to prevail. And uh, freedom, there should be absolute freedom of association. The harder question is what if the group, what about the association rights of the group itself to exclude people? And you know, the Boy Scouts as being a classic example. Uh, you cannot have the right of freedom of association unless you have the right to exclude. So let's say that an anti, a Christian group that is against homosexuality cannot be forced to have a homosexual join them in the same way that a pro-gay rights institution has a right to exclude one of those guys from infiltrating this group. Uh, so if you're going to have freedom of association, it's got to cut both ways. Right? So it really depends on what kind of university you want to be. But I do think you know, it's good to have some agenda universities in this country. That's part of our pluralistic heritage. Uh, I was just going to say, I think that the 
Oh yeah, that's a fraternity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I heard about that. Yeah, I mean, Princeton's a private school. It does have a certain um, proprietary interest there, I suppose. Um, I mean, I have to know more about the policy. I tend to think that I, I, having Greeks as part of the pluralism and uh, diversity of a place. When it gets to be too predominant, I personally think that's a problem for universities. Uh, my daughter went to Indiana where it's like 60% of the students are Greek. Uh, but that's a you know, policy preference on my part. Uh, I tend to think of the default position should always be openness. And so this was, they were prohibited even to come and talk about this or to, yeah. I don't, I, I find that very troubling. You know, not even to have the discussions. One thing to have the discussions, another thing to say we're going to allow Greek groups on you know, to organize and to have fraternities and sororities. So, yeah, I do find that troubling. Yeah, I think it's actually, good. I think, important to understand what the mm -hmm. inquiry for mm -hmm. diversity mm -hmm. or, or mm -hmm. free speech is, is all about. The way right, right. Because, because they might... Uh, in terms of self-regulation. Well, they might... What if you could show by... I mean, in the end, you know, Mill is making a kind of um, assumption about how the world always works. You can't get truth without freedom of speech. Uh, what if it could be shown in an ideal world that restricting certain viewpoints will help us get the truth? Like in a trial. You want the jury to come to the right decision. Partly it's a, partly a factual decision. It's also partly a normative decision. Uh, but there's certain kinds of evidence that are not allowed in because it might prejudice the jury. And so because of the paramount importance of truth to a jury, because someone can go to the death, you know, be killed or go to prison if you're wrong, uh, trials are rather structured in terms of what can get in. Should the same thing be applied to free inquiry? And so we have the experts who can tell us what should be in and what is not. Uh, if that were applied, it should only be very much out at the margins. At Wisconsin, the, the position we took on the code was any idea should be protected uh, if it's presented as an idea uh, and it's in any kind of way germane to, to the course. Uh, but I think you're right that, that even in Mill, speech is a means to an end, though I think I read on liberty a little more. I think he does sort of see it as an end itself, too. It develops character and things of that nature, but it's still primarily a means to an end. And I would agree with you that it's the 
It's the cultivation of the intellectual ability that should be the highest aspect of our, it should be what the universities are ultimately about. Uh, you can imagine freedom, people are just speaking nonsense. People are just speaking trash. You know, it's primetime television. <laughs> That's all anyone ever sees. Uh, that's not going to help us. Justice Douglas back in the 60s said that we should protect all obscenity because American people are smart enough to see it and reject it. And he was wrong. You know? So I, mean, so I agree with that priority. But I think just my understanding of human nature and history, I can't imagine any kind of meaningful restriction of free inquiry ever being uh, conducive to the higher intellectual virtues. Which right, that's an empirically contingent point. It's not a, um, uh, a deontological point or something like that. Now, that's a very good question. Um, certainly by example. There's nothing wrong with universities trying to promote that in an informal kind of way uh, and by example. This is part of university education, going back to your point, is in civilization, civilizing yourself and sort of elevating yourself in a certain kind of way. Uh, I don't think you can make people be civil. Uh, now, maybe you just had the wrong kind of administrators doing that. And these, this particular new class of administrators, which I talk about in the book, they can't be trusted with civility because for them it's just a, a club to, to, to get conformity and to punish dissent. Uh, maybe you get the right kind of people in place, it would work. Uh, but I have a lot of doubt. I tell you this, though. I would much rather have a civility code that applied to everybody than a politicized kind of speech code that only applies to one side of the spectrum. That's the real problem. Of course, let's talk about the double standard that exists at universities, at least now. And uh, uh, that's the problem. Equal protection of the law is a powerful moral device because it works both morally and politically because if everyone has to bear the brunt of the law who runs afoul of it, then you're going to have in place a more likely opposition to what's happening and the law is either going to go away or it's going to be tailored to be more reasonable. When you have selective enforcement, especially against those who don't have much power, that's when you get to sort of enforce codes on the cheap. And so a content viewpoint, and this is, this is the vision, this is the ingenious aspect of RAV versus St. Paul. You know, I, mean, I have a colleague, Howard Schwaber, who argued about this all the time, and he's probably right that RAV is illogical and can't be applied in a consistent way, but there's some sort of intuition that Scalia had in that case when you have a speech code based on fighting words that only deals with race, gender, especially maybe it wasn't gender because I don't remember, but race, gender, you know, sexual orientation, et cetera, that that constitutes viewpoint discrimination. It's only going to get one side if you say that I love homosexuality, you're not in jeopardy. But if you raise questions about it, you're in jeopardy. That's double standard. That's viewpoint discrimination. So like course, I would, if I, you're going to have a code, take those categories out of it. Make it apply to any kind of incivility. Of course, you've got to assume it's going to be applied that way. Uh, because then at least you're dealing with universal application. Yeah, yeah, but, said, but that's, to me, that's just classic discourse. Uh, you know, the Horowitz ad, the dean of students at Wisconsin the following semester equated the Horowitz ad 
with crimes that have taken place on campus and um, this kind of rank incivility. You know, the marketplace of ideas has to be, you have to be, we have to be tougher skin. Uh, you know, ideas, hard-hitting ideas. And, you know, the First Amendment is built on the back of scoundrels. That's the one thing my students remember 10 years from my class, 10 years later, <laughs> sort of the Father Sarducci course. Um, but it is. Um, so the civility thing has to be taken very carefully, in my view. We need, I think we need, you know, take, you know, take Louis Brandeis' view of free speech in Whitney versus California, I mean, a courageous confrontation of challenging ideas. That's the kind of, that's character. But it's a different kind of character from being touchy-feely and you know, being polite all the time. You know, ideas should clash. And I think that we, we universities are shirking that responsibility. At Wisconsin, all the freshman orientation are about climate in terms of sensitivity. There's nothing on the principles of open discourse. So I'd probably disagree with you at that point. Um, I don't know, Ken, you had your hand up. Can you, Royal? We got you too. Yeah, okay. yeah uh, I had a question uh, about campus alcohol policies. Uh, you know, I'm from Wisconsin, so you want to ask the expert, right? <laughs> Campus police? Campus police? Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Do people complain about that, or that's not a search for truth issue? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's <laughs> so Wisconsin, that's a huge problem because, yeah. Um, so what's the one thing you've never heard a person in Wisconsin say? You know, There's only one beer left, you can have it. You know. <laughs> uh, but student drinking, it really is a problem. I mean, you know, it's bars in some ways, you know, they're open public places. Students go in there and talk about politics, they talk about classes. Sort of a you know, Christopher Lash theory of bars as being sort of public forum for people in different classes come together. There's an element of that. It can be actually conducive to education. But clearly, when it goes to the extent that it goes at Wisconsin often, I think it really is a problem, and the administration is properly concerned about it. Uh, the question is, you know, how you how you attack it and how you approach it. And this seems to me ill-advised. It's again a, a lesson in you know, we're not going to really respect constitutional forms. Maybe not constitutional rights, because I think in this context, of, well, it's university police. I mean, that's they're private, though. So the Fourth Amendment probably doesn't apply, right? Unless you have a state ruling that makes them public. Uh, it does trouble me. Uh, there's got to be better ways of doing it. Unfortunately, education doesn't always work. You know, I've been trying that at Wisconsin for a long time, and you know, students just continue to to drink. We had a we have a Halloween riot every year that has a lot of us upset. I always ball my students out for it every year. Uh, but this, this seems just a draconian path.
kind of almost zero tolerance kind of response, I don't think it's the right one. What would you do though in replacing instead of that? But yeah, so I'm troubled by it. It's kind of answers that. Right. have these things passed yeah. nationwide. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I spend, I have a whole chapter in the book where I talk about the, the historical background. And I still don't really hit it, because it's sort of a mystery. But uh, first of all, you had, this is when you started having a, more of a critical mass of minority students on campus. And they were more cognizant. So part of this is like a sociology of knowledge or something, more cognizant of being offended. Uh, there was a fraternity in Madison that used to put up a uh, statue, you know, like a balloon type thing, a Fiji Island, and it had racial characteristics, and that had been there for 20 years. No one ever thought anything. Suddenly it gets recognized as a racial insult. And I understand, you know, understandably so. Uh, and then the students got more organized. You had a new administrator, Donna Shalala, was coming in. Uh, and suddenly the agenda of racial justice, which is a, you know, obviously a morally important agenda, uh, and having a comfortable climate for students on campus became really the issues. So, you know, what, be, what, be, what becomes an important public issue opposed to something else is always an interesting you know, set of factors. Those was like a perfect storm. The factors were in place, and they're the groups that had the power in the organization, uh, and they wanted codes. Uh, I look at, maybe just because I wrote a book about it, but I look at Skokie as a turning point, because Skokie was the first case where uh, at least of national prominence, where large members of the left said, wait a minute, this can't be what free speech means. And Herbert Marcuse's famous 1965 essay on progressive censorship, where he argued against it, a critique of pure tolerance. Censorship in a, in a racist, backward society should be used to censor conservative or reactionary thought in order for us to have social progress. So Mill, going back to your point up there, he said Mill was wrong because Mill was assuming a society that wasn't full of domination like our modern societies. Therefore, now censorship can serve the cause of justice. Well, that was only talked about on campuses, and then you had Skokie. And suddenly, people started to go, wait a minute, free speech can't mean this. Then you had Catherine McKinnon. It's my second book. <laughs> uh, and uh, an argument that you know, censoring pornography is necessary for women to have equality and not be subordinated. And so censorship started getting tied to all sorts of social progress movements. And something I think that's been downplayed uh, and is new theories of um, power and discourse, and postmodernism. And the postmodernism thing is a complicated question, because I think actually one view of postmodernism would be open expression. And I'm sort of quasi-postmodernist, because I'm you know, just part of my age. I have to admit that. Um, uh, but Foucault, you know, discourse is truth. Discourse is power. Linking speech to action, power, discrimination. So a discriminatory thought becomes the same thing as an act of discrimination. What that does is it eviscerates the fundamental policy distinction between speech and action, which is the foundation of the modern doctrine of free speech. That's a partial explanation for how this, all this stuff is going on. And, you know, McKinnon was a genius. She lost in the public forum. She won in the workplace. And, you know, 
sexual harassment is a serious thing, don't get me wrong. Uh, uh, it needs to be dealt with very strongly. But you, know, you can't call just putting up a poster harassment. The question is you know, what it means, how far we go with it. Okay? Uh, but McKinnon translated, or trans, some word I'm looking for, um, well, she, she changed her understanding of what it is for a woman to be insulted by a man. Rather than offense, rather than a violation of her privacy, rather than a violation of her autonomy, it's an act of discrimination because of the power differential in society between the genders. Uh, Jeffrey Rosen talks about this a bit in his book, The Unwanted Gaze and the Right to Privacy. And actually, I talk about that in my book. I want to bring back that way of thinking because it's a more liberal, individual way of thinking about harm than McKinnon's notion. So you had all these new, this sort of new intellectual field, or what Foucault would call a new episteme, that was drawn on. And the politics went along with it. That's why it happened. Uh, now, maybe one reason I ended up rebelling against it is because my view of Nazis and Skokie was a more traditional, quite sort of slash conservative slash liberal, i.e. confused, perhaps, um, analysis of why censorship at Skokie would have made sense. But it was done in the face of respecting free speech. Here's an exception we can carve out. And I started seeing how the new claims were going much further than that. You know, McKinnon wants to undermine the whole modern doctrine of speech. She wants to under, undermine liberal freedom in America because she considers it nothing but one big, massive oppression. So that's the kind of stuff. Am I missing something? Yeah. Yeah. Well, was, he was up there. Oh, it's incredible. This is typical. Now, I mean, that's that's a very important question, and um, it's hard because when university leaders now that they can talk out in favor of, of Churchill, though I don't see that happening at Colorado right now, uh, they are looking somewhat hypocritical because you know suddenly they they care about these things. Uh, I think they have to build a foundation of trust on the issue and by showing they're even having this and by, by making this a priority. And that's got a lot to do with it. Uh, other things became more important at universities. It's amazing to me, you know, Bino Schmidt, an exception at Columbia, uh, believed in free speech as a primary principle. Uh, I think we need a change of thinking of, of, of leadership. And if I were um, the president of the, apparently, Churchill is going to come to the University of Wisconsin at Whitewater in two weeks, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, the, if I'm the president, I'm going to use this as an example of why you need free discourse and why the censorship thing can work the other way. We have got to be against that, too. So it's really how they conceptualize it in public. That's all I can really say. Do you have any? You know, and that's not like universities have ever been utopias when it comes to this kind of stuff. You know, we are a kind of medieval institution that has all the attributes of medieval institutions in some ways. You got a couple more? Or is it just, or? Uh, we should probably take it outside. We have, uh, uh, we have a reception just outside, and you're, you're welcome to uh, continue the discussion with Professor Downs and, and yourselves. Uh, he will be around uh, for, for a bit longer. Uh, thank you very much uh, for coming. and coming
Yeah, it's fun. Oh, you know, I always want to take.